Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I'm Andrea Lopez Villafania, managing editor at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined this week by education reporter Jacob McWinney. What's up, Jacob? Hey there, Andrea. You know, I got to say, I, I appreciate that you don't sound like a, a livestock auctioneer <laughs> uh, when you read that intro. Scott has this tendency of reading it literally as fast as, you know, his mouth can move. And for whatever reason, that just kind of pains me. <laughs> you know? I got to breathe in between. I don't think it shows proper deference to, to uh, News Radio 600 Kogo. Um, and we're also joined by senior investigative reporters Lisa Halverstadt and Will Huntsbury. What's up, guys? Hey, what I up? won't say anything about Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob took all the room for takes. So, <laughs> what can I say? I'm a take machine. Coming up on the show this week, we have updates from the highly anticipated safe camping site. The city of San Diego opened the site to provide homeless folks a safe place to camp. Remember, this is all tied to the city's new ban on camping. The city is preparing to crack down on tents later this month. Lisa will share what she's learned so far. She also has a new story about racial disparities in homeless enforcement. She'll explain the numbers and what advocates are saying. And of course, the other side of the homeless crisis is housing. We'll report it this week on a project that could have housed many in need, but one wealthy family and their 100-year-old company blocked it. He'll lay out that story for us. Finally, San Diego Unified is facing a big budget deficit. We'll dig into the district's finances and what's hitting them hardest. That's all coming up. Stay with us. But first, wow, what a roller coaster, San Diego State. I know you've compared this to a relationship, Jacob, <laughs> but I kind of think it's like Mean Girls. 
Mean Girls. Yeah. Well, if it's like Mean Girls, the Mountain West definitely has written SDSU in its burn book for sure, hundred <laughs> um, percent. And and that's kind of the situation right now. There are lots of question marks, essentially, for people who weren't paying attention. Uh, San Diego State has long flirted with joining a power conference. Uh, Pac-12 seemed like the obvious one, um, and it was sort of wanting to leave uh, the Mountain West Conference, which was sort of a you know, smaller conference that didn't have this sort mm-hmm. of media rights deal money, didn't have the sort of exposure that, that a, a Pac-12, for example, would give them. Um, and, and there had long been rumors linking Mountain uh, San Diego State to the Pac-12 because, you know, let's be honest, the sports in San Diego State are amazing. Uh, and they've, they've kind of long been viewed as the, the kind of shining star of the Mountain West. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, long story short, there are all these back, back and forth between... Um, between the Mountain West and San Diego State, uh, with San Diego State initially submitting a letter saying, "Hey, we're we're thinking about about leaving." Sort of considering, like, yeah. would you be open to changing some terms of yes, our agreement? Exactly. You know? We're thinking of leaving. <laughs> probably on the way out. Probably on the way out. Um, but oh, this is a long-term thing, right? Can we yeah. figure out a way to extend this deadline uh, so that we don't have to pay this inflated exit fee? And Mountain West responded basically saying, nah, dog, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> and, pay us, and, give us the money. Yeah, give us the money. You now owe 17 million, uh, or you will owe 17 million in an exit fee if you don't leave by this date. Um, and all, what, what was really tough for San Diego State is they had not yet received an invitation from the Pac-12. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of like jumping out of this plane without a parachute. Now, now obviously, they still have a year uh, to be in the Mountain West Conference. But beyond that, it's really unclear what's happening. Was that um, always the case that like even when they first sent the letter, like we, we think we're going to we think we want to break up that it still meant they'd play in Mountain West this year? Yeah, I, I believe so. Yeah. Somebody, you know, don't get too mad at me if I have that wrong. Uh, all you sports geeks out there. Um, but <laughs> that's, my, that's my understanding. Yeah. No, I, I, I love you, but I am I am terrified of you. Um, <laughs> but he, uh, he wants to be one of you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so at this point, basically what what has happened was Mountain West Conference or the San Diego State sent a letter to the Mountain West saying, hey, guys, you know, we're we're not leaving after all. Like, isn't we that wanna, great? We want to stay. stay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's let's stay. Let's let's hug it out. And Mountain West Conference came back again with a you know a nah dog you're out, <laughs> and now you owe us seventeen million dollars, and mm-hmm. we're going to withhold this money from the media distribution deal that you already are a part of. Uh, and so it's just it's it's gonna. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. And I don't think it's very clear. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious because they removed uh, Mountain West, removed uh, San Diego State's president, Adela de la Torre, from their board. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so do they stay that year? And she has like no say. I, I I guess so. Uh, we have know. lots of nerdy questions to this like sports story. It's going to be rough too because you know they have such a high winning percentage in the mm-hmm. Mountain West. So Mountain West is mad at them, but are they still going to go in and crush <laughs> all the other Mountain West teams this year? Is this going to deflate their ego or inflate their ego? Well, I, I mean, if anything, I think that now San Diego State has really has something to prove. Right? Yeah. They, they want to be. Uh, as attractive as possible Revenge to these other body. conferences, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they have to they, they have to get in revenge shape, you know. Um, the breakup body is coming, um, 
And so, <laughs> I, I mean, we'll see. There, there are a lot of there are high hopes. I know at least from me about about what what uh, you know the basketball team will look like next yeah. year. Um, uh, uh, that's so. Is, is it is this is this a case of it's going to blow? You know, the theory of San Diego that everything's about to get big and then it doesn't <laughs> get big. You know, San Diego's just always tripping over its own shoestrings. Mm-hmm. Is this just another instance of that where potentially it's going to get worse throughout the year? Certainly, that's what Scott sort of posited um, when we talked about this recently, and I and I think it's possible. But but more than anything, I I, I think this is just a sort of wait and see moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, as a, as a somebody who was born and raised in San Diego, and as a, as a kid went to Aztecs games, you know, uh, Godspeed, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> and also this week, Mayor Todd Gloria had a press conference, and Lisa, you were there. I was there. Uh, So the mayor on Thursday morning had a press conference and he talked about the new safe campsite that has opened at 20th and B streets, um, which folks may be aware it's at the edge of Balboa Park. Um, It's a city operations yard. Um, So far, 20 people in 14 tents are there. Mm -hmm. Um, And he emphasized that this is better than the options on the street um, and that other cities are not doing this. And that was really a reaction to a lot of blowback from advocates who've been concerned that maybe the city rushed this and really wasn't ready to accommodate folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely, you know, he came in trying to talk about the different amenities that are there. For example, he talked about meals, um, the restrooms that are there, hand washing stations, um, shade canopies, because there was a concern that you know, folks are literally on the asphalt in these tents um, and and how would they deal with the heat? Mm-hmm. Um, he talked about the fact that there's, you know, uh, connections to services and other things there. Um, he talked also about the fact that they're really slowly ramping this up. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, there was a thought because, you know, this could accommodate uh, 136 tents that boom, you know, doors are going to open, yeah. people are going to flood in. But the provider has chosen to instead take in three new people mm-hmm. each day to try to ramp it up more slowly. And the mayor said that that's by design. Um, as they're trying to figure this out um, and bring more people in, they want to make sure that they have the necessary amenities um, and that they're able to adjust as needed. So this, the I think part of the concerns, right, that it was rushed. Let, let's go back a bit. So the safe lots... I remember when you like overheard it at a community meeting. They were considering a different lot at the time, Inspiration Point in Bubble Park. But um, this is all tied to the camping ban. It is. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because, you know, the city has this concept, I guess, to take a step back. This concept has been talked about for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, in San Diego, before the camping ban came forward, um, had looked at doing something like this. Um, And in fact, in 2017, during the hepatitis A outbreak, they had a safe campsite at 20th and B, which is the same site we're talking about. But efforts to do that again, you know, moved really slowly. The mayor didn't love the idea. Um, You know, there was lots of talk of what locations they should go with, what provider would handle it. And they were really struggling to get things together. Um, But the... uh, the camping ban seemed to be a real impetus to actually move it forward quickly mm-hmm. um, and actually deliver. Mm-hmm. 
um, for folks that don't listen to the podcast every week, um, Boo. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been talking about this one a lot, um, but the camping ban essentially um, bars folks from setting up their tents um, on public property when there's shelter available. But as we've reported extensively, there's often not shelter available. So that's a big hurdle for the city. But it also bans camping within two blocks of shelters and schools in certain parks uh, major transit hubs along waterways at all times, even when there's not shelter available. And so as part of that discussion, um, when Councilmember Stephen Whitburn, who represents downtown, um, brought forward this concept, he said it was extremely important to also provide places for people to go. And he really championed this safe sleeping concept that some folks might be hearing about now. And just to give a little more context on you know, what we're talking about with the ca- safe camping site, Um, This is essentially a place where the city is actually setting up tents and people are able to stay in those tents. um, And then there are other services that are there. So, for example, there are are restrooms. Um, You know, there are uh, there's transportation if people need to get to an appointment or something. Um, They have meals. Um, They are working out a solution for mobile showers so that Mm -hmm. people could take a shower there. Um, so really, it's about allowing people to be in tents rather than have them in that traditional congregate shelter that I think a lot of us, you know, historically have been fixated on in mm-hmm. San Diego. Can we go back to the the three people for a minute? You know, um, they're they're moving in three new people a day or a week? A, a day. Th- a day. And so, you know, uh, people seem to be a little some people at least uh, maybe in the activist community seem to be a little frustrated with the rollout at first. Now they're saying this is three people a day by design. Um, you know, I, I wonder if they stepped into this a little bit by, you know, I, I don't remember them telling us it was going to be a slow rollout a week ago when they announced it. They just announced we're opening to great fanfare. And then it's like, oh, wait a minute, we're actually going to open very slowly, which maybe is a great idea, but I'm not sure the community was like prepared for it to work that way. Yeah, if the messaging had been, we're going to open the safe lots, the plan is to, you know, do three intakes a day, and here's why, and this is what we're going to do, and maybe by what date we hope to get to X amount of people. No, but instead, you know, it was what Lisa was just talking about with the ban, you know, I've heard people kind of use this hands metaphor a lot Mm -hmm. when they're talking about it. Like services, we're offering services with, with one hand. And and if that's not working and you're not taking that, then we're doing enforcement. Right. And that's how these things are supposed to play together. So this is supposed to be like the big service offering. Um, So I I will say there's definitely been some messaging challenges here. Um, But on the day of the opening, I did talk to somebody from the Homelessness Solutions and Strategies Department, Strategies and Solutions Department. Um, And and they said, yes, it's going to be a slow ramp up. But I don't really think that's been effectively uh, communicated to the community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And and really, there has been confusion about how folks get in. So I've been fielding a lot of questions um, from both unhoused people and advocates about how they can get in. Yeah, how do they get in? So the way that this is working is they have to be working with um, an outreach worker. Mm -hmm. Um, And outreach workers have been working on sort of assembling lists of people that they've gotten to know who really, for various reasons, didn't want to go to congregate shelter. Mm -hmm. And so those are the first folks that are being offered to come in. Um, 
so today I actually asked a question at the press conference. How can folks get in who aren't connected to an outreach worker? Because I'm sure getting that question a lot. And the response I got is they should call 211 and then they can be connected with an outreach worker. I do want to say caveat real quick that I have heard a slew of complaints about 211 over the years. And I have heard that there's been some initial confusion around you know, whether 211 is aware or actually able to place people here. So I think there's still a lot that's being figured out in terms of how these intakes are working. Um, I think, you know, the city's now much more aware because of advocates of, of some of these challenges. Um, and this is something I do want to continue to monitor. Well, that's the thing about the the rollout, right, in terms of, of messaging what it was going to be like when this opened. Because the other thing I think we've seen this past week is people tweeting about people showing up and trying to get a spot and they can't. And they're just like being told to call 211, you know. So if you've walked across downtown to get to this place on the edge of Balboa Park and then, you know, I, I mean – it it can't if they're only letting in three a day and that's being managed by caseworkers, then by default, calling two on one is going to get you nothing in terms of getting in that day. I think we can say that pretty safely. Likely, yes. I do think that as it it, you know, develops, I think there probably will be some more clarity and outreach workers will be communicating to more people about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think we also have to say 136 spaces. You know, maybe to some people sounds like a lot. It's not. That is going to fill up really quickly. I know, you know, Jacob was out on the street recently talking to folks and heard this as well. I certainly have heard like there are a lot of people that are very interested in something like this. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think there are a lot more people that are interested than they have space for. Mm -hmm. Well, another thing related to all of this, this camping ban is likely to fuel more police interactions. And uh, you had a story this week that those police interactions would increase with Black San Diegans um, because according to the latest census numbers, 6% of the city's population is Black, but Black San Diegans make up 27% of the unsheltered population. Uh, that's according to the latest annual homeless census count. Uh, so, Lisa, your story lays out kind of a, a possibility that city council members and advocates are worried about. What are they saying? I mean, what we're talking about is that there's, you know, if you're a black San Diegan, you are disproportionately likely to be homeless and you're also disproportionately likely to be affected by enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, and so I had done an analysis um, of encroachment enforcement. Now, Encroachment is basically blocking a sidewalk. It's the primary tool that the police now use to address homelessness. And what I found is that from 2018 through last month, or actually through May, mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't believe we're already in July, um, that 28% of the citations and arrests were given to black people. Um, and I think that's really significant and speaks to the concerns that some folks have um, both in the advocate community and on the city council. Mm -hmm. There's a concern that we already know that black, black San Diegans are disproportionately likely to be homeless and to be affected by enforcement. And so if you have a new enforcement tool, it's likely that they are going to be disproportionately impacted by that as well. And the encroachment numbers do bear that out. Mm -hmm. um, they're concerned too about you know, what are the impacts of these encounters, right? right? So 
how might um you know that encounter you know might mean that uh, somebody has a harder time getting off the street or maybe that they're less likely to accept services um and so there was quite a tense discussion at city council when they voted on the camping ban because of the concerns surrounding this right and you had someone in your story who felt you know there there's the argument of like bias here with police officers and you had someone in your story who personally experienced something um, that, you know, led to them being disconnected with the, you know, resource that he was connecting with to, you know, eventually move off the street. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about Anthony. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, Anthony's number has changed. So I wasn't able to, to get in touch with him. This is really common for folks who live on the street. It can be hard to stay in touch. Um, but I was talking to Anthony quite a bit last year um, after an encounter that he had at Balboa Park that just really traumatized him. Um, he ended up just fleeing that area because he was so concerned about running into the police again and potentially being arrested. Um, and as you pointed out, he ended up losing contact with um, the service provider that was coming to that area of Balboa Park to try to help him. Mm -hmm. And he actually lost contact with them for weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and then suddenly, you know, he popped up again. Um, one thing that I, I didn't uh, mention in the story is he said to me, and this this just always sticks with me since this conversation, is he said, you know, sometimes I just have to remind myself that I'm a person. Mm -hmm. And I think that just really speaks to the fact that he felt like he was being treated as a pest mm -hmm. and, you know, certainly, you know, felt that quote. perhaps his his race was part of the story there. Yeah. What do the police say in response to concerns from advocates that – um, you know, this will affect Black San Diegans disproportionately in the topic of bias. So they say that this isn't a bias issue. Mm -hmm. um, they point out that, you know, the unsheltered population, um, you know, 27% of it is um, Black San Diegans, and that their uh, citations, the 28% that I cited earlier, kind of line up. And mm -hmm. so that speaks to you know, not a disproportionate impact when you look at the the homeless population specifically. Um, but they do say if there are concerns that people have about bias, they want to hear about them and that they are trying to, you know, make sure officers receive training. So every two years they're receiving anti-bias training um, and that this is something they're talking about on a regular basis. But certainly I think, you know, what can't be missed is that, you know, whether the police um, might argue that there's not a bias issue. There are a lot of people that feel that there's a bias issue mm -hmm. and, you know, had a conversation with the the police captain I quoted in the story. And we were just talking about how, you know, sometimes what happens in one of these encounters, it can be really hard to prove. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that the person didn't feel something. Um, and certainly I've talked to a lot of people over the years who have felt that their race played a role in how they were treated in an encounter with a police officer. So obviously the city council had a pretty, you know, tense moment in in that meeting. Uh, what was the result of the conversation that they were having about race and enforcement and what they were hoping to change? So Council President Sean Elo Rivera wanted to add an amendment to the ordinance to track all stops related to this encampment ban. And the police came back and said, well, we can't really do that. Um, and Councilmember Stephen Whitburn requested um, 
a break so that they could sort of talk about this. And when mm -hmm. they came back from the break, there was a really tense exchange um, with council member um, Monica Montgomery Stepp, who was concerned, like, are you guys trying to just like not track this? Like mm -hmm. what's going on? And there was further conversation about it. The police said, well, you know, we can't um, actually track stops. Um, I won't get into the weeds on why that is, but they said they couldn't actually track stops, but they could provide monthly reports tracking actual enforcement and provide a breakdown of the races of folks that received tickets. This is citations. Um, or arrests, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. And um, so they will, going forward, the city council approved that amendment to provide monthly reports um, tracking enforcement and providing racial data. Um, and so uh, Council President Elo Rivera uh, said to me, you know, that it's his hope that by at least tracking this and being aware of it, um, police and the city will do all that they can to avoid this uh, disproportionate impact that they're very concerned about. Um, so another thing that came up during this uh, morning press conference on Thursday was the mayor talked about a story that our Will Huntsbury had this week about a wealthy family and their company and how they're blocking a new housing project. Yes, yes. He weighed in on it. I heard he gave it a lot of clarity. <laughs> he made sure we had credit. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. So, Will, tell me, tell us, what did you find? Well, um, like you said, uh, well, I'll back up even further than what you said. The, the city has been trying to buy extended stay motels around town for quite some time with state money called home key money. And they're trying to buy these extended stay motels to permanently house um, homeless people. I heard that they had their eyes on one and it was getting blocked. Um, and it was getting blocked by this hundred year old San Diego company, maybe the oldest San Diego company still in existence, um, a powerhouse of Southern California development, HG Fenton. Um, you know, I had heard that they were blocking this deal. And long story short, you know, I found out that was true. Okay, so who is H.G. Fenton? H.G. Fenton, um, the company started in 1906. It, it was uh, started by this man named Henry G. Fenton. Um, you know, like I said, they're, they're big in development now, and they have lots of developments across Southern California. But uh, in 1906, um, Henry G. Fenton had just... He started as a, a ranch hand in the San Pasquale Valley when he was seven years old. Nice. Moved here with his mom. A little bit of history here. Yeah, yeah. Quick, <laughs> quick little history lesson. Um, and he uh, ended up basically getting some contracts for public improvements. Um, like he paved a lot of the streets in Coronado. He built this jetty that extends off Coronado. He worked on the Tijuana racetrack. Um, so, you know, he was involved in all these early infrastructure um, projects across the city. And he also started buying up huge chunks of land, mm -hmm. ranches and quarries. I told you he used to be a ranch hand. He was in, into that whole ranch thing. Um, and so he died around 1950-ish. And after that, the H.G. Fenton Company began developing all this land he had bought. And, you know, they kept those quarries running for a while and, and those ranches, but eventually they put all that away and they said, we're only going to do real estate and development. And um, one of the key places they wanted to develop 
they called Mission Valley Heights. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, in Mission Valley, just um, north of the eight. And it's where this extended stay motel is. Um, so they had all these plots of land there. And um, they started something called a covenant, um, which Oof, our listeners may or may creepy. not be. Not a coven. Not a coven. No, um, a, a covenant. Um, and so covenants are kind of like homeowners association rules. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, anybody who bought a plot of land in Mission Valley Heights from H.G. Fenton had to sign on to this covenant. And it had all these restrictions in it, including that there could be no subsidized housing. So, you know, that means the home key program. That means uh, the government housing people. Mm-hmm. Um, so they sold a chunk of land. Extended Stay America bought it. Um, but Extended Stay America had to sign on to the covenant. Mm-hmm. Um Extended Stay America decides they're down to sell to the city. The city decides they want to buy it. Um, This place has 140 rooms. So, you know, you're talking it could house a couple hundred people at least, you Mm -hmm. know, in those rooms. So when the city goes to make the purchase, they find out about this covenant. And uh, it, it, needless to say, throws a wrench in the whole thing. (laughs) Um, You know, the city asked H.G. Fenton to change the covenant. They had the power to do that. Um, but H.G. Fenton was like, no, nah, dog, we're not doing it. We're not changing it. Not a chance. Is a covenant that denies the ability to create affordable housing on a plot of land? Is that is that even legal? I feel like that 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 would be something that at this point, as we're trying to develop everything yeah. because of our crazy housing shortage, that that just would not be allowed. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And other people ask me that, too. Like, how can you block something from happening on a piece of land that's not yours? Yeah. You know, because the zoning doesn't preclude that. Right. You know, uh, anybody who wants to build something, they have to stick in uh, with the city zoning laws. You know, the the projects have to um, conform conform to that. Mm -hmm. Um, But this was just like a private contract between different parties who own, you know, a big chunk of land together. And long story short, it's questionable whether you can do that. Some people say you can do that. Some people say you can't do that. The state of California actually specifically wrote a law two years ago that said people could get these covenants struck down. So the city could have tested that. The the city did have a legal tool at their disposal to try to overturn this covenant. Mm -hmm. But you know, um, the home key funds do have a tight deadline to get them and it's just weeks away. And so basically the city's response to me was, you know, we think this law is questionable. Number one, we're not even sure it holds up in court. And number two, like, it's just going to be too much of a logistical challenge for us to try to fight this. Yeah. So at the press conference on Thursday morning, I asked the mayor about this and, you know, his, his response was basically, you know, we'll, seek every opportunity we have to to try to get affordable housing but this deadline is just a problem and and we need to to meet this deadline mm-hmm. um he threw in a little bit of a jab about some previous reporting that Jacob and I did um about the city in the past um missing an initial deadline city and county all the cities actually in the county missing an initial deadline um at an easy crack at some money uh, and he said that you know, we want to meet the deadline this time. We want to get the money. I did note to him that, you know, he could take this to court. 
Um, he didn't seem too excited about that. Let's prospect. play the clip. Let's play the clip. The property that you're referring to is one that had been identified as a potential option for a home key application. When we did our due diligence, we discovered that there are covenants of accorded against that property that prohibit uh, property in that area of Mission Valley being used uh, for uh, affordable housing. Uh, we had some uh, conversations uh, with the association uh, that monitors or enforces those covenants, and uh, we did not receive a favorable response when asking if they might consider changing those. I, you know, I think it's very fair on the city's part to point out that, like, there were very difficult timeline problems at mm -hmm. stake here. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think, you know, we would also be remiss to not point out how powerful H.G. Fenton is. You yeah, know? well, that part where he said we did not receive a favorable response. <laughs> I think the quote in your story captured how powerful and how unfavorable that response was. You want to read it? It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, so the mayor uh, the mayor said it a little um, uh Diplomatically, there, uh, Walter Spath, the um, an attorney for the San Diego Housing Commission, said the response was absolutely not, and we're going to do whatever we can to stop it. They have deep pockets, and we have every reason to believe they were not bluffing. So that that's basically what H.G. Fenton said uh, to the suggestion that they change their covenant. <laughs> so H.G. Fenton, we're talking like Fenton Parkway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're talking like, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we'd call him a founding father of, of San Diego, but mm -hmm. certainly a power player in its early development. And, you know, for that matter, the company's still very powerful today. You know, they spend a lot of time lobbying City Hall. Mm -hmm. um, they have been involved in the building association here and running it Um for many years. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and, you know, not only that, they, they've spent a lot of time raising money for Todd Gloria. They've donated a lot of money to Todd Gloria. So these are people who are talking to him and his staff members all the time. They're raising um, money for him and they are very opinionated when it comes to development and uh, their opinion in this case um, won out. And, and, you know, that was perhaps aided by the timeline at play. Mm -hmm. Is it true that there already are homeless folks staying in this extended stay hotel? Well, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was a deep irony of reporting this story is that um, there are actually homeless people staying there now. Mm -hmm. um, and various programs have been funding uh, homeless people to stay in this extended motel uh, as far back as COVID. Um, and so Spaith, the housing commission attorney, he told me that that is something that would have played in the um, city's favor, right? That, that because something that matters in court is not just that you have a contract on paper, but how you enforce that contract on a day-to-day -day basis. And if mm -hmm. you've never been enforcing the contract, you have a much weaker argument that your, your contract is really at play. Mm -hmm. So what happens now? Uh, you know, did, did he shed any light on that whatsoever, Lisa? I think Lisa kind of tried to ask him what happens now today. Well, it's unclear, you know, what the future prospects for this hotel purchase are. He said that they're very focused on, you know, finishing the due diligence for the other two hotels that they're still looking at. Um, and they already submitted a home key application um, for two other sites. Mm -hmm. um, so they're now pretty focused on moving forward with the others. 
but these, you know, these they 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 they've had multiple motels in the works throughout. But it's definitely worth noting that even if they get these two, you know, they've been shifting motels in and out as it goes along as they try to figure out which which motels will work for them. But you know, the maximum beds they're going to get has certainly now been decreased, not exactly by 140, but close to 100. You know, even if they get everything they want at this point. You know, Fenton will have, uh, you know, certainly had its way in making sure that there are going to be less permanent housing um, units available in the future. And and, you know, you can feel about that however you want to. You know, maybe you think that's great. You know, some people are very anti-housing first these days. Right. Or you can think it's uh, um, a tragedy that this corporation had this influence. Um, the fact of the matter is they had it. There will be less beds. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, it's important to keep track of. Mm -hmm. Well, let's connect this back to our earlier discussion about the safe campsite. And, you know, certainly the mayor has talked about adding additional shelter. If you don't have places for people to go from these safe campsites or the shelters, the shelters or the safe campsites become permanent destinations, which they were never intended to be. Mm -hmm. And so earlier this year, um, I had reported on the fact that at that time, just 11% of people who were exiting shelters were moving into permanent housing. And there were people that were waiting a really long time in shelters for housing. And at the time, the Housing Commission told me that they were essentially in a resource desert. You know, they didn't have housing options for folks um, to the degree that they needed them. And this home key application was really seen as a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so now there's just going to be a bit fewer um, at least we know for sure because they have to apply to get the money and move forward with the purchases. But we know that there are going to be fewer resources than they hoped there would be. Um, thankfully, I'm happy to report the shelter outcomes have gotten a little bit better recently. Um, about 15 percent of people exiting shelters in more recent history have been moving into homes. Mm -hmm. But I think anybody who looks on our streets right now can see that we need a lot more places for people to be. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Join culture creator Remel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's Program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. The budget for San Diego Unified's current school year was approved by the board in June. But during that meeting, officials projected a big deficit 
coming in the 2024-2025 school year. They say the deficit could be as big as $128 million. And they said it could get bigger the year after that, potentially over $180 million. So, Jacob, our education reporter, how does the district explain all of this? Uh, Well, they basically explain it by saying it's tough times, right? Uh, State funding for uh, education has decreased in the latest budget. Um, There have been a couple iterations. You know, the first budget was pretty great for education officials, but then the May revise came out and it was not very great for education. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Yeah. And and the most recent budget um, put some money back into into school's coffers, but, but was still less than the original. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one big factor in all of this, Mm -hmm. right? What the state is awarding schools. A second big factor is as we've come out of COVID, uh, we have seen not only the enrollment decline that that public schools have long seen speed up. Mm -hmm. So there are fewer kids in our schools now by quite a lot than there were before the pandemic. And that enrollment decline is projected to continue. We don't see that slowing down much at all. Uh, and in addition to that, um, average daily attendance has also declined, right? We've seen this explosion in chronic absenteeism, as I've reported, and, and average daily attendance is another uh, factor to, uh, when when the state is determining how much funding each school gets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are also other costs. Um, you know, the district recently uh, approved a, a new contract with the teachers union mm-hmm. that will see a 10% retroactive raise back to July 2020 and uh, a 5% raise going forward after this uh, starting next school year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting. It, it, it does seem, uh, I think for a lot of people, like really kind of crazy that the district would approve these big budget in, or these big pay increases for teachers uh, mm-hmm. at a time when they are also projecting a budget uh, deficit. So just to put in context, on, in context, what these numbers look like, just the retroactive pay increase back to July 2022 will cost around 130 million. The budget the district projects, mm-hmm. and the entire budget deficit for which they are projecting for the 24-25 school year is around 128.9 million. Um, now, granted, this increase in pay is happening, you know, retroactively, whereas this budget deficit will be happening not this coming school year, but the school year after that. And as you said, the district is projecting things to get bleaker on down the line mm-hmm. uh, with an increase to 182 million budget deficit mm-hmm. uh, in the 25-26 school year. What do school district officials say about, you know, dis- making that decision about raising um, salaries for yeah. employees? Well, they, they basically say they have no choice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they say that... Um, they needed to increase pay in order to retain and recruit the highest quality teachers, administrators, and staff uh, that that they need to, to run the district. Um, you know, with increased cost of living, they said essentially they were between a rock and a hard place. They had to increase these these this pay, um, and if they didn't, then <laughs> they would be without staff and, and teachers. Uh, so, you know, I, I think we still have to wait to see how that shakes out. Uh, but it's definitely uh, a pretty bleak time. Now, now I will say, 
the district has been in budget holes of a similar size to this in the past. Um, for example, they projected a $124 million budget hole uh, for the 27-2018 school year. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, back then, the district resorted to layoffs. Um, it, it seems around uh, nearly 200 employees were laid off. Uh, the exact number, they, they, it was kind of hard to come by. Um, but uh, school officials say that for the 24-25 budget deficit that they are projecting, they they are confident they won't have to lay people off. Again, I think it's too early to tell, uh, but they have put forth a bunch of strategies that they say will help them plug this giant hole, mm-hmm. um, which include trying to increase average daily attendance. Again, uh, ADA is one of the big things that that the state factors in when, it, when determining how uh, school districts get funded. Uh, they hope to lean in to UTK uh, enrollment, as I have previously reported. reported. Yeah. They, they see uh, UTK as a way to increase um, you know, enrollment over the long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also are, are batting around um, uh, programmatic cuts here and there. Um, and you know what? I, I, I'm realizing now that I, that I didn't mention one big factor in all of this, which is that um, $160 million that the district was receiving, uh, these federal COVID relief funds for schools are expiring uh, after this next school year. So that's another huge reason why all of this is happening for the district. So I have to ask, because I know yeah. some of our listeners will wonder, I mean, year after year, or election cycle after election cycle, San Diego Unified has gotten bond measures through. Mm-hmm. Are these helping at all? Or <laughs> Well, the way you have to understand bond measures is that bond measures are a pot of money for a very specific type of thing, right? Uh, so the district can and districts across the state can use bond measures to, say, build a, a school or to buy computers or to buy iPads or, as Voice of San Diego has reported in the past, uh, buy faulty uh sports fields, <laughs> right? <laughs> but unfortunately, they can't shift this money over into their general uh, uh, operation funds, right? So you can't pay a teacher, you can't pay a nurse, you can't uh, use any of this on staffing. Uh, and so unfortunately for the district, these two pots of money are just are separate and, and, and they cannot dip into that in order to you know make up for uh, uh, holes in their operating budget. I thought um I thought Cody Pedersen's um quote about like going forward with this budget situation was so good. This is a roadmap for sweating. We're going to have to sweat a bit. <laughs> yeah, I, I I appreciate Cody's Cody's quotes. He's he's a he's a good talker. Um, I think I you know I I guess you know my reaction as somebody who also covered education a little bit. Um, you know I I've. There were the layoffs that you mentioned uh, at San Diego Unified. I also covered Sweetwater um, Union and a financial crisis they had. And, you know, they had, you know, a lot of people get up in arms about these raises. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether that's a good uh, idea or a bad idea, I'll, I'll put that to the side. But here are the facts I know about Sweetwater. You know, they had talked about raises um, and the state told them if you do, or the County told them if you do these raises, it's going to be disastrous. They did the raises. 
Um, and then nice. they that's always a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> Disastrous. And, and they and then they end up covering up their budget hole. You know, they then they hid their budget hole that that created. And, you know, then they got slapped by the SEC after we covered it um, mm-hmm. for a couple of years because they were you know making all these financial disclosures that were false. I, I guess I'm saying the balancing act is that, yeah, you definitely have to attract talent. That is correct. And I think they're right about that. But like if you are the union officials pushing for those raises, you also have to know it is a possibility that there could be layoffs later if you push too hard on the raises. Like if the union officials get 15 percent now, which they got, and then it turns out that wasn't sustainable, then some of their like union brothers and sisters are going to get laid off. And Mm -hmm. that is a got to be a tricky place to be in. Yeah, I can only imagine it. And, and, you know, from what I understand, I think that there was uh, some transparency about all of this when when contract negotiations were happening. Um, And, you know, the district says that that they have a whole year to figure out where these cuts are coming from. Uh, They they aren't under, you know, any illusion that this is going to be easy, but they are confident that they can balance their budget again. I mean, (laughs) that's all to be seen, Um, but they say that there are options. And right now they're hoping to not resort to kind of the least appetizing option, which is laying folks off. Well, you can follow Jacob's reporting um, and subscribe to his newsletter at VOSD.org slash learning. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. Keep up with all our news updates and big stories with The Morning Report, our most popular product. Subscribe at VOSD.org slash morning. That's VOSD.org slash morning. I'm Andrea Lopez Villafaña, Managing Editor at Voice of San Diego. Jacob McWinney is our education reporter. Will Huntsbury and Lisa Halverstadt are our senior investigative reporters. Nate John is our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.